churches, we've been studying the book of Romans together. And though it's first and foremost a letter or an epistle as we refer to it, uh, nonetheless, even though it's a letter, it contains a masterful summary of Christian doctrine. And this is why uh, I, I believe Pastor Luke had talked about this in the previous two messages on this uh, on Romans, but uh, it's often referred to as the greatest letter ever written for that reason. Uh, John Calvin described how the book of Romans is so very precious, not just as a standalone book, uh, but because it's one of the books of the Bible that unpacks every other book, helps us to understand every other book of the Bible. So we're very excited to be able to teach and preach through this. Uh, we definitely solicit your prayers that uh, you guys would be praying for us, that God would give us insight uh, to preach this faithfully and effectively by his grace so that our congregations would not just simply grow in more information, uh, but grow by way of transformation, that the word of God would have a transforming effect on our lives. And so today we come to the second portion, the second half of chapter one. And one thing that we can appreciate about the Apostle Paul is that he writes his letter, delivers his message by use of reason and logic. He's a very reasonable and logical person. So as he writes the book of Romans, it's not just like a stream of consciousness. He's just kind of saying anything that comes to mind and just, oh, I think this will be helpful for them to know as well as this and as well as that. No, he's building a case for the gospel. And so the way the book of Romans works is that each thought builds upon another. And that's why you see the words for and therefore. You see those words used a lot because again, he's connecting thoughts and building one thought on top of one another. So instead of just kind of this shotgun approach of just throwing Christian truth out there, uh, he's carefully constructing a case or we can imagine it like building a building. One piece on top of the other. And so as we ended last week, uh, Paul uh, was basically sharing his thesis for the entire book, found in Romans 1, 16, 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Uh, long story short, the teaching of the Christian message, the gospel tells us that salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Christ has done, his finished work. Uh, and it is by faith in Christ's finished work that a person can be saved. Well, again, Paul, being the reasonable, logical person that he is, realizes there might be some people asking the question, okay, okay, saved by faith, get it, get it. Well, why do we need saving in the first place? What do you mean I need to be saved? Why do I need to be saved at all? And if you were to go out into the streets of our neighborhoods, into Philly, if you're going in the streets and tell people, you need to be saved, you probably hear that same question. Saved from what? Why do I need to be saved? And this is what Paul sets out to tackle in the section we are studying today. And so uh, as he is about to unpack the good news of the gospel, he wants to show people what tremendous news uh, the gospel really is in order to appreciate the fullness of how good this news is. You have to appreciate the fullness of the bad news. You got to understand the bad news first, and that's what's going to help you appreciate just how sweet the good news is. And so that's what he's doing here in this section. He's unpacking the bad news. And so specifically, we'll look at it under these three headings. We'll look at the reality 
of God's wrath, the reason and result of God's wrath, and lastly, the remedy for God's wrath. Okay, so once again, the reality of God's wrath, the reason and result of his wrath, and lastly, the remedy for his wrath. And just parents, if you have junior high kids, high school kids, just a note, we're going to touch on some adult themes here, so uh, I encourage you afterwards to unpack some of these ideas and thoughts uh, with your children. All right, so before we proceed, let me invite us to pray one more time, and let's invite the Lord to help us in this time. Lord, Again, we thank you for your saving work, your saving power, and we sing of how sweet it is to be saved by you and and the wonderful invitation that you extend to come home to you. Uh, And yet, Lord, because this is a message that is so very familiar to us, oftentimes, Lord, it it becomes kind of old hat, uh, familiar in a bad way. But I pray that as we look at your word, as uh, we study your word together, that you would open our eyes to once again see and appreciate actually just how bad the bad news is um, so that in light of that bad news we would more and more appreciate how sweet and how precious your salvation truly is and so work this in us so that we would treasure you love you more and walk out of here desiring to serve you more faithfully in reliance upon your grace we pray this in jesus name amen So again, the reality of God's wrath. It says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Paul makes it very clear. Mankind is under the wrath of God because of ungodliness and unrighteousness that mankind has shown and lived in. Now this idea of a God of wrath, frankly for a lot of people, for those who even claim the name of Jesus, right? Those who consider themselves Christians. For some, this is embarrassing to talk about. That God is angry. That God is a wrathful God. That embarrasses some people so much so that they want to theologize their way out of it. Sanitize the Bible of hell. Sanitize the Bible concerning teachings of God's wrath and so on and so forth. For other people, if you mention how God is angry, how God demonstrates wrath, ironically, it makes them angry. What do you mean he's angry with me? Well, forget him. I don't want to serve a God like that. He's all angry, so on and so forth. Uh, What people prefer is a God that never gets angry at all. A God that's just all love, all kindness, all grace. That's what people prefer. As if the opposite of love is anger and wrath. That's the assumption. That's the thinking behind that kind of feeling. You know, I don't want to believe in a God who gets angry and stuff. I I believe in a loving God. That's the kind of God I would like. That's what I'd like to believe God is like. He's all angry. I mean, he's all love. He doesn't get angry. As if love and anger are opposites. But the fact of the matter is, love is not the opposite of anger, or anger is not the opposite of love. Anger, in fact, is a fruit of love. Anger is a fruit of love. So let me illustrate it like this. I recently read about a very disturbing headline about how in an an elementary school teacher, this is local Philly news, was caught and arrested for installing a camera 
in the boys' bathroom during a theater camp for the purposes of filming them and distributing that material for adults. We know why. Now, if one of my sons, I have three of them, was filmed, if one of my sons was a victim and that was uploaded to the internet for all the world to see and God knows what to do with those images of my naked son, it's precisely because I love my sons. You better believe I would be angry. And in fact, it would be wrong for a parent to not be angry. There would be something wrong with that parent if they weren't enraged over such a thing. We've all, I'm sure, heard very much about Larry Nassar, that doctor who abused his victims. Imagine being the parents of one of those girls. Of course you would be angry, precisely because you love your daughters and you care about them and you are grieved over such a heinous act such a terrible thing that has such a destructive force in their life. So the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. Yeah, whatever. That's the opposite of love. But precisely because God is love, as the scriptures tell us. He loves what is pure. He loves what is right. He loves what is good. He loves what is true. Therefore... He is angered. He is angered by what is not. And furthermore, the anger of God is perfectly pure, perfectly righteous, perfectly justified, unlike so much human anger. And this is why I think a lot of people push back against the idea of an angry God. Because most of the examples we have seen in our lives are terrible examples of anger. We've only seen bad examples of anger. True examples of pure and righteous anger are so very rare in our world. And so that's where I think a lot of people, when they think about God being angry, they project onto God these horrible examples of terrible, unrighteous anger. But that's not the kind of anger God demonstrates. God's anger is pure, and it's completely justified, and the sobering truth is that it is directed at humanity. And Paul gives us the reason why. The reason for God's wrath, second point. He explains in verses 18 to 23, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is making the point that God has created all things. And because he's the creator, his fingerprints are all over creation. Such that human beings should be able to look at the created world and come to a genuine knowledge of God. 
It's a limited knowledge because it doesn't tell us everything there is to know about God. But nonetheless, it's a genuine knowledge. You can look at creation and find out what God is like. His awesome power, his wisdom, and how everything is intricately designed and made from the cosmos to the human cell. His wisdom, his power, his beauty, his artistry, all of this is put on full display in the created world to give us a genuine knowledge of what God is like and most of all, his existence. His existence. But instead of responding in the proper way, by honoring God and giving him thanks, as it says, which simply put is just another way of saying Instead of treating God as God, instead of treating God as he deserves to be treated, mankind has instead suppressed the truth. You see, people's rejection of God, or more specifically, people's refusal to believe in God, to deny his existence, is actually not an evidence issue. It's a moral issue. It's not for lack of evidence. What does Paul say? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth there's something twisted in our hearts that doesn't want to believe in god why because if god exists and if god is who he says he is then we gotta obey him then he calls the shots then he's the lord and we have to abide by his ways but you see human humankind in rebellion we don't want to do that We want to control our own lives. We want to call our own shots. We want to live how we want to live. We don't want someone telling us what to do. And therefore, we suppress what we know to be true, what's clear, but we stuff it down so we can live how we want to live. There's a very shocking and honest admission from Aldous Huxley, who's an English writer and philosopher and also an atheist, very well known for his novel, A Brave New World, right? very renowned author and philosopher. And here's what he, in a a moment of stunning honesty, here's what he writes. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness, not believing in a God, not believing that all this is here by an intelligent being, a divinely ordered world, right? The philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our what? Sexual freedom. Most ignorance is vincible, able to be overcome. Most ignorance is vincible ignorance. We don't know because we don't want to know. It is our will that decides how and what subjects we shall use our intelligence. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because, for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. This is exactly what Paul is talking about. I want to live how I want to live. Huxley and his contemporaries, we want to we live out with our sexuality and whatever category of life, we want to live how we want to live. And if God exists, then we can't do that. So let's just convince ourselves, reason our way into atheism. So it's not 
Again, an, uh, an issue of evidence. There's not enough evidence. If only I saw more evidence, I'd be convinced and I believe in God. No, it's a moral issue that starts in the heart. And the fundamental default nature of the human heart is to say, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want him because then I have to serve him. Then I have to follow his rules. So let me convince myself. Let me let my reason serve my heart's desire to not want there to be a God. However, it doesn't just end with the suppression of truth. Verses 22, verse 22 says what? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you refuse to acknowledge and therefore worship the creator, refuse to center your life on him, refuse to look to him for meaning, for your purpose in life, for hope, for joy. If you reject him, then inevitably you will look to something else because we are hardwired for worship. Or to put it another way, we are hardwired to crave glory, to crave an experience of transcendence. But we're hardwired to experience that in God. So if you refuse to experience the glory of God, his transcendence, his beauty, his worth, and wrap your life around that, you will inevitably look elsewhere. You have to. That's how you're wired. And this is what we call, in biblical terms, idolatry. It's when you refuse to serve the living God and then you turn to something else. Now, in Paul's time, idolatry literally took the form of making statues, and this is what he's getting at. Images of mortal man and creeping things and animals and so on and so forth. They literally worshipped gods in the form of animals and statues and such. Doesn't happen, at least in our modern context, in this society, in our culture. You don't see that as much. But nonetheless, idolatry still exists. It's alive and well. We're made to love, trust, find meaning and identity in God. But instead, we try to build our life on other things. And not these things that we try to build our life on, it's not necessarily that they're bad things. They can be good things, right? But the phrase that we often use when we talk about idolatry is the problem of idolatry is you take a good thing and you make it ultimate. That's idolatry. It can even be a good gift God has given, but you make it ultimate, meaning you live for that instead of him. A few examples. For many people, it's their career. They look through their careers for a sense of worth, a sense of value, a sense of meaning. And many in the immigrant community uh, have grown up under this unspoken or perhaps spoken pressure. If you're not the top student, if you're not first chair violin, then you're worthless. As if our worth is based on our achievements. And many people well into their 30s are fighting against that, right? I can't just be a doctor. I got to be the top doc. I got to come out in the U.S. News top doc thing, right? And it's just fighting, fighting to prove their worth, their significance. And you know what? I'll be the first to say pastors are just as guilty. You know, I go to, oftentimes I'll go to pastor's gathering, pastor's conferences, and this strange dynamic happens where pastors, when they get together, what do you talk about? Church, right? 
Where's your church? What's your church like? And inevitably, what comes up? How big is your church? How many people you guys got coming out? Right? And sometimes it's an innocent question. Just, how big is your church? How many? But it can be a very idolatrously driven question. We're pastors in the room measuring each other up. How many people in your church? Oh, we got like 120. Okay, we got like 400, so I feel a little better than this guy. How many people you got in your church? Oh, we got like 5,000, 6,000. Oh, man, you just kind of <laughs> slinked off, right? As if, as if church attendance says anything about the value of that pastor. It doesn't. The value of his life. It has nothing to say about that, but we make it that idolatrously. Loved ones. You know, I regularly teach a premarital counseling course to prepare people for marriage, and I'm always warning couples, don't idolize your marriage, because as wonderful as a gift it is, it's one of the greatest things that can also become an idol. A beautiful, precious, good thing that you make ultimate, that you look to your spouse to give you what only God can give you and was ultimately meant to give you. Parents, maybe the reason your devotional life has suffered as a parent is not because of time. Because that's what we say. Oh, I'm in this new season of life, and it's just expected that my spiritual life is going to tank because my kid's always crying, and we're driving him here, and we're driving him there. So, you know, I'm sure God understands my spiritual life stinks right now, and it's parenthood, it's parenthood. And you know what? That, to a certain degree, might be true. I don't want to take away from that. It's, it's hard. Trust me, I understand. I've been through it three times. But a lot of times, that can just be a veiled excuse and perhaps what it might expose is not that you don't have the time, because the reality is we make time for the things we value, right? I don't care if you're an Eagles fan, what's going on on Sunday night. I don't care what it is. I'm sure you will clear your schedule. <laughs> but what do we say? I don't have time. But perhaps it's just veiling that your kids have replaced God. And I say this, struggling with that temptation myself. Just to give you an example, as a pastor, you go through all kinds of ups and downs. It's a very emotionally exhausting job. Dealing with people, dealing with people's stuff, and it's exhausting. And sometimes, especially times where things are going, it's a little hard. Maybe, like, people are upset with you, and you're getting scathing emails, like, pastor, blah, blah, blah. Right? And then you just go home, and you just, it's a slow walk home. You're just on the street for me. Just walking home, just those three blocks feel so long. And then what happens? When I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling beat down, when I'm feeling unappreciated, where should I go? I should go to the throne of grace. That's where I should find my chief comfort, my chief sense of worth. I should go before my Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. But what ends up happening? I walk in the house, and at least now, right? This may not last, but at least for now, I walk in and my boys, Daddy's home! Daddy's so cool! Daddy's awesome! Daddy's so strong! Daddy's... And I just, yes! <laughs> yes! And I feel great about myself, right? And Paul is in the corner jealously like, I've been caring for you all day, and, right? And I'm just getting kissed and hugged and ah, choked and... And you know what? In, 
just in and of itself, is there anything wrong with that? No, of course not. It's a joy that God has given us kids, but very easily, my kids can become a functional God replacement. It's a quick fix. Because it's much harder to go to my room and pray. It's a lot easier to just, yeah, I'm the man, <laughs> right? Here's another example to show how anything can become idolatrous. Sports. Think of how some people, like me, when a team is doing well, it'll make your week. Just everything that, you know, Monday, hey, how's it going, brother? Can I pray for you? You're just in a great mood, right? Or the team loses Monday. Get out of my way, right? And just the whole city, you can feel it, just, right? And, and think about how, for some people, it's such a huge deal. I mean, it's such a huge deal. It'll literally destroy their year if we lose this Sunday, right? Where does that come from? There's something in us that wants to taste glory. Wants to experience glory, transcendence. And to be a fan means you get to experience a part of that. And that's why we say when our team wins, we won. I didn't do anything. They're never going to, I'm never going to be at the stadium and be like, where's Dwight? Oh my gosh, where were you? We need you right now. I didn't contribute anything. If I was their fan or not, it, it does nothing for the Eagles. And yet I say, we won. Because there's something in me that loves to experience and share in that glory. And when they win, you see, I feel a little better about myself. Oh yeah, I'm an Eagles fan. Right, we champs, we're world champions, baby. Right, you feel a little better about yourself. And when you lose, right? Because think, I mean, seriously, think about this. Think about for someone who, in all of their life, imagine they feel like a loser. Work isn't going well. In worldly terms, they're not successful. They're not going anywhere in life. Failed relationships. And then, like, for the... When the Eagles win, though, there's a part of them that just feels better about themselves. Now, again, I'm not saying by virtue of being a sportsman, you are automatically idolatrous, but it can be obviously used in those ways. Another example Paul mentions in this list is sex. And in our passage, Paul clearly states the biblical view God's view of sexuality, and it's a view that is certainly considered at the least old-fashioned. At the worst, it's a view that's considered hateful and bigoted. And in the not-too-distant future, it may very well be likely that legal action could be taken for what I'm about to say. But the Bible does not affirm same-sex relationships. Now, I say that, I say that, grieving the fact that there are people out there, maybe even in our midst, who have been tremendously hurt by people who call themselves Christians, bearing the name of Jesus, but who have treated the homosexual community and others, the LGBT community, in very hateful and terrible ways. And we certainly grieve 
unnecessary hurt, unnecessary offense that has been caused by people out there just acting foolishly, hatefully, in ungodly ways. But having said that, there is a necessary offense in the gospel that's inescapable. And this is what Paul often talks about. The gospel is offensive because it challenges our sexuality. It challenges everything, how we spend our money. At so many different levels of your life, it challenges you. And that can be hurtful. But in this passage, it's clear what Paul is getting at when he describes how women exchange natural relations with men for those contrary to nature and vice versa. Men do the same. But you see, Paul isn't singling homosexuality out because it is the very worst among sins. He's not singling it out here because it's exceptionally bad. Why he's bringing it up here is because it's the perfect illustration or perfect example of the point he's trying to make and the point he's trying to make is this here's what happened to the human heart after we rejected god that which should be natural now feels unnatural that which should be natural loving god serving god obeying god delighting in god now feels unnatural and this is why it takes a herculean effort for us to read our bible and pray and get on our knees it's like ah like everything in against we got to fight against everything in us to do what we were designed to do in the first place that which is should be natural now feels unnatural and vice versa that which should be unnatural should be wrong feels right the human heart is all messed up it's all distorted. Our desires are all messed up. Which means, just because you're a heterosexual, just by virtue of being a heterosexual, this passage is not saying, so that must mean, oh, all of your sexual desires are rightly ordered. No! Heterosexuals, too, are out of whack. Think about what is God's design? What is God's intention? What should be natural? One man, one woman, in the context of marriage. That's where sex is designed to be enjoyed. But what does our society say? What? One person for the rest of your life? Wait till you get married? Who could possibly do that? That's so unnatural. And so they make a mockery. They make movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin. Right? How could you, how could you live a fulfilled life how could you live a content, satisfied, fulfilled life by, by just denying yourself in that, in that regard? It doesn't make any sense. So what should be natural is now deemed unnatural. Human heart is all distorted. So regardless of your sexual preference, the fact of the matter is all of humanity, our desires are all out of whack. And so this is why we need to be very careful by the, using the language of, well, it feels right to me. I'm just going with what feels right, which is what you hear in our culture today. It feels right. This is all I've ever known. This is what feels right. We have to be very careful of that because the question we need to ask is, take a step back, is what you're feeling and desiring, is that right? So let me use an example. For an alcoholic, 
it probably feels completely right, completely natural to grab whiskey at 7 a.m. and just start pounding down shots. I'm sure that feels natural, that feels right. But it's not good. It'll destroy him. And likewise, we shouldn't excuse or try to justify our behavior based on what feels right because maybe what we're feeling is all out of whack. But the main reason of bringing up sexuality in the first place was to simply make the point we idolize sex amongst many other things. And we look to sex to give what only God can really give us. For the pursuit, when people, you know, pursuit illicit sexual relationships and whatnot, how, whatever form it takes, the pursuit of sexual ecstasy is really just a grasping for a much deeper ex- ecstasy that's meant to be enjoyed in God. That's what sex was designed and created for in the first place. God gave us an experience of that ecstasy as a marker pointing forward to the ecstasy of enjoying him forever. But this gets all twisted and distorted. And we use sex as a God replacement. Rosaria Rosaria Champagne Butterfield is a well-known writer, speaker, former English professor at Syracuse, who before becoming a Christian, lived an openly lesbian lifestyle, was the dominant voice of the LGBT community on her campus, and then her life changed forevermore when she met Jesus. And she is now married. It doesn't always end that way. I I get that. It doesn't always have to end that way. But she is now married. And here's what she writes looking back on her experience. Being a lesbian was not just a description of the kind of sex I like to have. Being a lesbian encompassed a whole range of feelings and perception, character qualities and sensibilities. It reflected the depth of my non-sexual friendships and the integrated community I wanted to build with women. Being a lesbian also reflected the kind of professor I was, the classes I taught, the books I read, in the dissertations I directed. I was all in, and I was a jumble of emotions, because according to the Bible, what I called community, God called idolatry. Simple point in sharing this was that for her, she realized, you see, the sex, her sexuality was far more than just about the sex. It was a whole identity. That lifestyle is where she found her community, her worth. She was looking for much more than just the sexual experience itself. There's a deep, deep craving in her heart that was looking for much more. Now, I've just given a few examples of how idolatry plays out. I could give a lot more, but the fact is, all of us, believers and unbelievers alike, struggle with this. We all fall into the trap of what's called what I refer to as the exchange, where we exchange God for something else. And what is the result of that? For this, Paul says, for that reason, we are under God's wrath. And what does that wrath look like? In what form does that wrath come? Well, Paul makes clear in chapter 216, there is a day of judgment that is coming. A day where Jesus speaks about himself upon his return. A day of judgment is coming. However, that's not what Paul is talking about in our passage today. 
That's not God's only expression of wrath when Jesus returns. That's not the only time wrath will be poured out. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then again in verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. How does God respond to human idolatry? He gives them up to it. He basically says, okay, you don't want me. You don't want to follow me. You don't want to obey me. You don't want to live in me. You don't want to look to me. Have it your way. Go. Do what you want to do. Do whatever your heart desires. Go for it. And that is what Paul is saying. That's how God's wrath is revealed. By letting us have our way. You see, he doesn't say, that's why Paul does not say, God's wrath uh, will be revealed. Paul says God's wrath is being revealed. And he lists this horrible, what we can call a vice list. 29 to 32, right? They are filled with a manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We see a mirror to society. We see a mirror to our own hearts because a number of these can be found in ourselves, even on a daily basis. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, right? It's saying deep inside as humanity, deep inside we know what we're doing is wrong. But again, we suppress it, and in fact, they give approval to those who practice them. Our generation loves to use the language of, hey, whatever you do behind closed doors, that's your business. It's not my business. Do whatever you want to do. As long as you don't hurt and murder people, fine. But Paul's take on this, what Scripture says to that is, for those of you condoning what this society is doing, you are just as guilty, if not more evil, than those actually participating. Why is that? Because by your leniency, hey, whatever goes, do whatever, do whatever, you are contributing to an entire climate where many people will practice the very things that break the heart of God. You yourself might not be doing it, but there you are on the sidelines contributing to an atmosphere and a climate, a society of many people who will do these things. And so again, Paul lists this vice list, and not only does it serve as an indictment, here's all the things humanity is doing, it also serves as the punishment. Because think about this. Read this list. Who wants to live in a world like that? where people are rude, insolent, gossipers, slanderers. But guess what? That is the world we live in. It's a very broken and dark world. And this is part, this is a part of how God expresses his wrath to humanity. 
This is the bed you made. Now see what it's like to lay in it. The text is telling us the worst thing God can do is leave us to ourselves. Because think about the other side of the coin. The best thing God can do is give us himself. So to just let us go, live however you want to live, is the scariest thing that could happen. Oscar Wilde, again, not a believer, but ironically, he spoke a lot of truth when he said this. When the gods wish to punish us, lowercase g, he didn't believe in God. When the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. And I don't think he realized how insightful this comment was. It's exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. The worst thing God can do is say, fine, just let your desires run free. Do whatever you want. I uh, remember when I was just starting out in ministry, I really wanted to plant a church. I pray, God, let me plant a church. God, let me plant a church. He would always, the doors were always closed, and here I am, 20-something years later. And not to get into that, I'm content now, don't worry. But in the early years, I was, God, why, why, why? Now I look back and I realize it's the worst thing he could have given me is let my dreams come true. Why? I wasn't ready. I was immature. I would have shipwrecked myself, my family. I'm convinced of this. If it went well, my head would have swelled up. I would have been unteachable and proud. So the worst thing he could have done is let my desires just give me what I want. This is what C.S. Lewis is getting at when he says, in the end, there are only two types of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says, thy will be done. Meaning, fine, have your way. Thy will be done, lowercase t. And C.S. Lewis says, it's the latter who are in hell. You want life without me? Here you go. Remember how Paul describes exchanging the creator for creation as foolish, futile, and it leads to nothing but darkness and emptiness. We pursue careers, and what do we do? You see people shipwrecking their families, cutting corners, lying, stealing, cheating to get on top. You see people chasing love, wanting to be able to sleep with whoever they want to sleep with, and what has it led to? Think about the irony of this, the whole Me Too movement, right? How in Hollywood it's coming to light that all these women were abused, sexually assaulted, basically raped against their will by men in power. There's this huge movement servicing. And think about the irony here. I'm certainly not victim-blaming. I hope you hear me correctly here. I'm not victim-blaming. I'm not saying that, that the women who that happened to was their fault. Not in any way. But collectively speaking, think of the irony here. Who was it? Who is it that preaches the message, sleep with whoever you want to? Hollywood! Who puts that message out there? Oh, why be so restrictive and old-fashioned and wait for marriage? No, just do whatever you want. Let your passions run free. And look what it has led to. Yes, many men have let their passions run free. And in so doing, have destroyed the lives of other people, namely those women. But you see, the emptiness, the despair, the destructiveness of our idolatry, through it all, God still, even though it's a form of his punishment, through it all, God still shows grace. And here's how, as we close. 
Think about the story of the prodigal son. We sang about it. I didn't know they were going to sing that, so praise God. He does that sometimes. Wow. Lined up perfectly. Um, it took the prodigal hitting rock bottom, eating with pigs, for him to finally realize everything I ever wanted, I already had with the father. I got to go home. And God could use the emptiness and brokenness of this world, whether it be frustrations with your marriage, frustrations with your family life, not going the way that you're hoping for, your career not going the hope, way you hope, or maybe you got what you wanted and the, you get to the top and it's still pretty empty. Whatever the case might be, God uses those very feelings of frustration, brokenness, hurt to drive us back to what we were always meant to to enjoy in the first place the Father's love. The only one that can actually fulfill your heart. The one who you were made for. And that's the last point I want to share. The remedy. Yes, we've tried to exchange God for other things. We've tried to replace him for other things. And God had every right in that moment to just say, fine, I give you up for good. But the staggering humility and grace, in an act of staggering humility and grace, Jesus Christ says, Father, don't give them up. I'll give my life up. The perfectly obedient son left home, not to run away from the father, but to go after us who were running away, to bring us back home to the father, the many prodigals who left Jesus chose to take on flesh. And though we were the guilty ones in what we call, what do we call the gospel? We call it the great exchange. Because Jesus took the punishment upon the cross that we deserved, and in exchange, he gave us the everlasting approval of the Father forevermore. And so may this just be a simple call and encouragement to you all. Run home to the Father. Run to the Father. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and maybe you can, again, identify with this feeling of, man, there's just nothing that's really just doing it for me. I, I did, I've accomplished, I've gone after everything the world has told me to, and there's just this lingering emptiness. I encourage you, come home to the Father. His arms are open wide if you would simply acknowledge that you've been made for him, that you've been running from him, but that you believe that he sent his son Jesus to die in your place so that you would experience what your heart desires to experience. It's just that you've looked in all the wrong places. And even for those of us who are believers, we can constantly, we do it all the time, we do it every day, we wander from home in our foolishness. Run home to the Father, for only in him do you find the fulfillment, the hope, the security, the significance, the love that you long for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And though we were the guilty prodigals who squandered what we long for 
and we had in the first place, but we squandered it all away. And we've looked in all the wrong places. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in humility you came. You chose to lay down your life so that we could find life and have it forevermore. Truly, it has the great exchange, what you did upon the cross. God, I pray for any in this room who do not know you, and I pray that in your grace, whether through this message or as they continue to come out and seek, that you would draw them to yourself. Bring them home. The very place where they were made to find themselves in the first place, at home with you. For only is, it is only in you that we find the love, the significance, the hope, the security, the glory that we're all looking for is only found in you. And even as your children, we still are so prone to wander. And I pray that for those of us who have perhaps even as believers, once again tasted the emptiness of pursuing other idols, whether it be a struggling marriage, whether it be our kids not panning out the way we hoped, <laughs> whether it be uh, our careers not going anywhere, or arriving at what we always dream for and being still empty at the top, whatever it might be, God, in this time, use a taste of that disappointment and futility. Would you use it in your grace to bring us back to you more wholeheartedly, to run back to you? For your arms are open wide. And the reason they're open wide is because Christ opened his arms wide, stretched him out on the cross, taking the wrath we rightfully deserve for our idolatrous and wayward hearts, but giving us in return an unbreakable, everlasting love, heart's delight forevermore in our relationship with you. And so indeed, Lord, bring us home and bring us closer into your heart. Reorder our heart's desires so that what should be natural will feel natural, loving you, serving you, honoring you. Reorder our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. Reorder our desires that we might glorify you in return forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and close in song.
verse 2 and verse 3 one last time, just really focusing that Christ took on that wrath for us. On that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was Stands in victory, since curse has. Stopped.